I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi, you're listening to Fashion Unzipped. I'm your host, Charlie Gowans Eglinton, and with me in the studio today is a guest who needs very little introduction. As editor-in-chief of British Vogue for 25 years, Alexandra Shulman became a figurehead in the fashion industry. And I have to admit that I was more nervous preparing for this interview than perhaps any other, and I've interviewed Cher. Since stepping down from that top job in 2017, Alexandra has continued her work as a journalist and commentator. We've got a lot to talk about, so we'll jump right in. So, Alexandra, welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Let's begin at the beginning, uh, because I think for so many listeners, they'll be wondering how you you know, could possibly get to this position in your career. Where did you start in journalism? Gosh, um, that was a long time ago. I started really in journalism as a secretary. Um, it was secretaries then, not personal assistants or executive assistants, I was the secretary to the editor of a magazine called Over 21. And um, that no longer exists, but it was a completely brilliant place. I, I think if I hadn't been Shirley, she was called Shirley Lowe's secretary, I probably never would have got to do what I did because I sat right next door to her and I sort of learnt how the whole magazine worked because it was an open plan office and i read all her mail, I typed all her answers, um, I watched her kind of cut up, then it, you know, it was cut and paste articles, so cut up articles on paper and stick them together in a kind of edit. I did the um, expenses for the whole company, worked the switchboard, and really kind of learned about how the whole thing worked. And where did you go from there? So then after a couple of years of doing that, I had started pitching freelance articles because I didn't actually want to remain a secretary forever. And um, one of them was to Tina Brown, who was editing Tatler at that point. And I suggested an article which seems kind of like how this is the most predictable idea in the world, but it was how Notting Hill was becoming a fashionable place to live, which in 1981, which is what it was then, was new. And um, so she said, yeah, do it. I'll pay you um, £100, I think it was, for a thousand words. And um, I did it and she offered me a job. So I went to Tatler and sort of worked my way up from there. And then 
25 years at Vogue. Mm-hmm. The longest serving editor in chief of British Vogue. Makes me sound like I'm in the <laughs> army, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, you survived 25 years. Um, how much has that kind of shaped your career and, and who you are now? Because before that, you weren't so much a fashion journalist. Mm. You were writing about everything. And then obviously Vogue is, is the fashion bible, as it were. Sure. Well, I came to Vogue from being editor of GQ, which was um, a relatively new ma- man's magazine in, um, in the UK. And I didn't know very much about men's stuff either. So I'd kind of learned that it didn't matter terribly how much you knew about the content in the magazine, so long as you could judge whether something was a good piece of writing, whether something was a good layout, whether uh, an image was a good image, and most importantly, that you could hire and keep good stuff. Um, And that was... uh, So I went to Vogue with, with that knowledge and not a lot else, and I think... I think probably, you know, looking back now, because it's odd when you've... I mean, I left nearly two years ago now. And it seems kind of... I feel like I've gone back in a way to being the person that I was before that 25 years because I'm doing less that is only about fashion. And so much of my life at Vogue was to do with fashion. But I feel like it's added a an extra layer to my knowledge and my being but it was never my whole being. How did it feel being, you know, at the heart of that industry? Because it is a, it's a very kind of unique, I would say, industry, you know, especially when you were going to all the fashion shows and sitting front row and, um, and that culture of fashion editors and everyone around you. Um, well, I don't think when I, when I took it on, I didn't, I didn't really feel that. And actually it was, something that I never got very involved in. I mean, someone was saying the other day about something and about all of the kind of the business of the fashion industry and it being competitive and um, in in a slightly different way, perhaps, to, to maybe say what something like publishing might be. But I never really felt that or noticed it. I, th- I think maybe I was quite lucky. Uh, that didn't really permeate me. So I didn't notice a lot of what was going on. I didn't think, for instance, about what people would be saying about me, about the way I looked, for example. I mean, I knew that people would think, well, she's kind of it's kind of odd she edits Vogue because she doesn't look like the kind of person we imagine edits Vogue. But it didn't really bother me that you know I just thought well that's part of the deal did you have any moments where you know when you first got that job did you rush out and buy a whole new wardrobe (laughs) or anything um so when I got the job I did have a bit of a panic about my clothes um and I went to Brown's in South Moulton Street and I bought uh, a black jacket and skirt so it was like a suit well it was a suit not like a suit and um, I had a kind of a bright turquoise kind of almost like a frock coat, which was quite fashionable then from Joseph, which I wore with trousers. And those were really the only two things in my wardrobe that were actually new. Everything else um, was bought sort of secondhand from Portobello. Um, so I do remember going to Harrods um, probably about a month after I got there 
and thinking I've got to buy some clothes that are appropriate for, for my job. And I bought the weirdest things, like this huge gingham skirt, because I think I'd seen on some catwalk some kind of cowboy trend or something. So I came back with this enormous purple and white gingham skirt that was, like, looked hideous on me and that kind of thing. And what about, in you know, in the last 10 years, say, as Instagram's come around mm. and... Uh, certainly I felt that, you know, when I was studying at uni, there was no Instagram and that wasn't what I was signing up for. And even I studied kind of print journalism and print magazines and then graduated into this industry where people were starting to be looked at for what they were wearing just as much as what they were writing. Was it a conscious decision for you that you you didn't want to buy into that too much? Yes, I think it, I, I think it was a conscious decision to remove myself from from that um you know possibly I'm so competitive that I don't want to compete in something I'm not going to win so you know there are a lot of very good looking very chic people in there in fashion and I think you know I thought well if I'm not really going to go into this whole hog it would be better not to to be involved at all uh, having said which you know I came to Vogue in 1992 and Things like Instagram or the idea of the the sort of visual cult of the fashion editor, I think, really grew up a lot later. And it might have been harder to remove myself if I'd, you know, if I'd been 34 in 2010, say, or something. And you kind of, that's what, that is what you sign up for now. But it wasn't what I signed up for. Have you changed, you know, since since leaving in the last two years? Do you dress differently? Do you spend less time thinking about hair and makeup? And No, the curious and really peculiar thing is um, I spend more time thinking about hair, makeup, uh, shopping, um, clothes. I've just, they, they've all become pure pleasure for me, whereas before they were part of work. So... You know, I spend my life scrolling through, um, you know, online shopping. Uh, I've never had so much makeup in my life. I really enjoy wearing makeup in a way that I probably didn't when I was at Vogue. Um, I, I just kind of have more fun, I think, with my clothes because I'm just totally doing it for myself and... I guess there's something, you know, if one's honest, there's something about the fact that you walk into an office and there are like, you know, 50 really great looking women, many of whom are, you know, thinner than you, younger than you, are sort of more on trend with you. It's uh, it's more kind of challenging and not so much fun to go in and just wear what you want to wear to experiment. Um, so... I did wear what I wanted to wear previously, but it was within quite a narrow parameter, whereas now, like, there's nobody to notice, really, what I'm wearing. Well, it's a lot to live up to, that title, though, isn't it? And and perhaps, you know, a reader's expectation of what you look like and what your wardrobe is and that you walk in each day and, you know, choose a pair of Manolos off a shelf with a 100 other pairs of Manolos and... There's this dream, isn't there, of, of what the editor-in-chief of Vogue looks like? I think there's a fantasy of what the editor-in-chief of Vogue's life is, that's for sure. Do you feel like you've gotten your life back then? Does it kind of feel that way? I've got a different life, um, a life I've never had. So it's not a life I got back because 
I left uni when I was, I think, 22, 23. And I got a job immediately. And I worked in an office. You know, it's sort of, you know, clock in, clock out, really. Um, until June the 23rd, 1917, when I left Vogue. And um, I've never had a life like this. I've never had a life where I can wake up in the morning and lie in bed and kind of choose if I want to uh, lie in bed for longer and then know that I can work all night or um, to organise organize a timetable that really suits me. I mean, I'm probably working or as busy as I have ever been, possibly slightly busier because you don't have the kind of support structure who, who do all the kind of admin in your life. Um, but it's... It's a very different way, and it's so it's an adventure. That's that's what I wanted it to be, and um, and that's what it's turned out to be. And it was a very deliberate decision to leave and kind of have an adventure with my career. Well, this is perhaps the second act for your career now. Yeah, yeah, a second act. I mean, maybe even a third act, really, because I think I was kind of a journalist which is slightly different from being editor of Vogue. So I was journalist, then editor of Vogue. And now I'm, well, I'm not sure what, but something. <laughs> what were the very best bits, the highlights of your career, you know, looking back now? Sure. Um, well, there was always, it was always exciting. I mean, for me, the physical magazine was what I really passionately loved putting together and um, so when when one had an idea and you commissioned it and you had an idea of how you wanted it to be and it arrived and it was how you wanted it to be that was really exciting I mean whether that was a fashion shoot or whether that was a kind of um, features article or even some kind of a roundup or something or a portfolio that was always a real kind of buzz, you know, seeing the thing arrive and then knowing that you were going to turn it into pages in the magazine and people were going to be able to buy that magazine and you'd watch them looking at it. That was that was always exciting. Um, I think in t sort of more specifically, um, some of the events that we did, some of the kind of um, like the... My last year there, which was the centenary year, probably was the best year I had and one of the reasons for leaving because um, the exhibition that we helped put on at National Portrait Gallery for 100 Years of Vogue was just staggeringly interesting to be involved in and so wonderful to watch people go through and get so immersed in, in the magazine and the images and what that magazine sort of meant in the culture and then sort of we had a great gala dinner that year and it was a real kind of real hoot introducing, you know, Sadiq Khan to Giorgio Armani and watch Kim Kardashian come in and see Mucha coming there and sort of meeting Damien Lewis and all of that. You know, I really loved that, that, that time because it was such a, that dinner was really interesting because it celebrated such an achievement which was not my achievement it was Vogue's achievement for existing for a hundred years sometimes dinners were just kind of nerve-wracking <laughs> you were quite open about you know well certainly that year you you published a book mm. um you know keeping 
quite honest and, and quite personal in, in places diaries and also allowing the BBC into the offices for that documentary. Do you have any regrets about being that open? I uh, don't have any regrets about my book. Um, I'm quite proud of that book because I think it it was very honest and I think people often aren't very honest when they talk about their lives and, and their work lives, their professional lives. And um, I was very grateful actually to be allowed to do it. Um, in terms of the documentary, I would say I had thought it was going to be different to um, how it was, mainly because, as actually I wrote in the book, I had been told that documentary would not have a narrator. And if if you don't have a narrator, a documentary has a slightly different tone. Um, and if you have a narrator, it becomes very dominated by the tone of voice of the narrator. And... I hadn't been expecting that. I hadn't been expecting the director who we were working with to actually be a narrator. And it kind of flipped it from being a documentary about what it is to put together a fashion magazine to being a documentary of what somebody like him thought about putting together a fashion magazine. They cut it for drama, didn't they? And they did cut it for drama. They were hard-pressed to find any drama. That was part of the thing. I mean, we had tried to... to um, we'd worked with another television company about a decade before, and they, they stopped doing it because they couldn't find any drama. And um, Richard, who was the director, was always kind of hovering around desperately hoping that, you know, there was going to be a flare-up or tantrum or something was going to go really, really horribly wrong. So he was he was very relieved when he found some kind of thing about, I can't even remember now, but about, I suppose, uh, me and American Vogue shooting Rihanna, I think it was. And he thought he could make a big story out of that. Um so I felt a bit sympathetic for him, really, because he, he he didn't have many stories. While you were at Vogue, actually, you wrote a letter to designers about sample sizes and about how actually at Vogue you were in the practice of sometimes retouching models to make them look bigger um, because you felt that the sample size only fit models who were often, you know, unhealthily thin. That debate doesn't seem to have changed as much as you know it seemed like a turning point then and that was in 2009 10 years later we're still kind of facing the same body image questions mm. well first of all I didn't retouch models to make them look bigger I tried to encourage photographers not to retouch them to look thinner right um and not to retouch them to make them look in their views perfect so you know to keep freckles in to keep sort of skin pigmentation in to keep lines in um there's a fairly losing battle i have to say um but uh so you're right it hasn't changed as much as i would wish um i think that the the size question it's kind of one step forward two steps back two step forward one step back i mean you you get small initiatives and i think the general trend and the general direction is a healthy one i think there is a broader acceptance of different body types now 
And it's absolutely clear that general public want that. But when it actually comes down to creating the imagery, um, whether that be editorial or advertising, uh, sort of the various factors at play seem to find that quite hard to deal with. And I would say also, which is a bit more of a kind of complex issue, is that what people say they want often isn't actually what they want. So the idea that people want to look at pictures of people who look sort of like themselves or a reflection of of themselves and that they can kind of believe in isn't necessarily true when you actually ask them to to mark an image, say, and say how much they like it. Or, you know, that's when all their kind of natural criticisms come out. Well, especially when you're in the business of of gauging, you know, which covers sell best, because you'd always get those figures in. And I suppose then you could kind of track, actually, whether people want aspiration or relatability. Well, I I think it's an interesting point you bring up, the one of, of covers, because in the period of time since I've left Vogue, I think that the cover issue has has changed and um, my my remit was very much to do with selling covers at a newsstand. I mean, that's how my sales were judged. And, you know, th- there were kind of trends that worked, there were personalities that worked, there were models who sold better or didn't sell better. And I think now, because newsstand sales everywhere are diminishing, I think the idea of a magazine cover has become more about what kind of an image do you want to project rather than is it actually going to shift copies solely. And that would have been a great liberation actually to to be working with. So... um, so I think that must be quite fun. It, it allows you greater experimentation. Do you think print is going to survive going forward? I love print. Um, and I think there's every evidence that print will survive uh, in various forms. I mean, everyone sort of, you know, video didn't kill the radio star. And I think that digital isn't going to kill off print but not all print I mean there was a huge huge expansion in print uh, during the period of time actually that I was working um, from the 80s really through till about uh, 2010 let's say and um, that's meant that there's actually too much print out there. I mean, there was going to be a natural cull, even without digital. I don't think that was a, a sustainable amount of newspapers, magazines, supplements, add-ons. Then you you bring digital into a mix, the mix and a younger generation whose sort of go-to is, is their phones. And you've got another problem for print. But print is adds an element that just can't be replicated by a screen. And so I'm pretty sure that print will survive. And I'm really interested to see how a lot of online businesses are now turning to sort of niche print in order to to boost their image. And so you can kind of see that the power of print is still actually valued but it's, I think things have to be more clearly targeted, probably smaller circulation. What do you read? Oh, I read 
so much. Um, I read a lot of interiors magazines. I read New Yorker. Um, I read about four newspapers a day, either in print or online. But I still much prefer reading reading print. Um, and I read uh, well a lot of books. Do you ever read Vogue? Yes, of course. I read Vogue. <laughs> you couldn't do something for twenty five years and not want to see what happens. Oh, I don't know. When I've as I've left places in my career, I've just thought, oh God, that's too much. You can't help but read it and see all the politics of a team and all the well, internal cogs. Well, of course you look at it like that, but also you get in a way, you get the kind of fun of looking at the magazine when it's not been work for you. So, you know, I, I look at Vogue. I don't look at it every issue, but I, I'd probably look at the majority of them um, and read, you know, a lot of things that are in there. Um, and... I'll tell you what, though, for the first time when I go to the hairdressers, I re- you know, and they say, would you like some magazines to read? And I always used to think, of course, I don't want any magazines to read. You know, I've spent my life doing a magazine. That's not relaxation. And now I'm like, yes, you know, hand me all the magazines. I love it. When you left, though, obviously the, the public interest in you didn't disappear. Mm. Uh, and I remember you posted a bikini selfie on Instagram mm. and it was a huge news story was that bizarre for you uh totally bizarre and um one of the things i think uh i've definitely discovered about uh myself since since leaving is that there is an idea that i'm much more deliberate about what i do than i actually am and uh so that that um <laughs> that bikini picture i i just couldn't believe that anybody would pay any attention um, to my putting up a picture of myself in the bikini. I mean, had I had I realised that something like that was happening, I would at least have tried to make myself look better. I would have tidied up the bedroom, <laughs> you know. I mean, I would have made the background look a bit kind of chicer and everything. I mean, I did it to sort of say, hey, I'm on holiday on Instagram. I didn't think the fact that I was in a bikini would have any relevance. It would be any different anyway to if I was in a swimming costume. Um, and, you know, and, and I was wrong. God, I mean, that was incredible. We were on a boat. We went out, I think I posted it and said going out on the boat. And we went out on my friend's boat. And when we got back, which was about four hours later, um, David, who I live with, said, oh, I've just got this message saying that, from somebody saying, you know, your selfies become a news story. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. And but obviously I looked online and yeah and it, <laughs> it had weird. Has it made you more cautious about what you share? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't think um, things don't seem to make me cautious. Um, I think if you start second guessing yourself too much, uh, I mean you're going to make mistakes and. But, and you might not make some of those mistakes, but you also might not do some of the more interesting things you do. So I don't think you, I mean, obviously as an editor, I think, you know, you have a judgment, but 
I think if you become too cautious about what you do, uh, you are going to lose out. Because your column, so you, you write this column now for the Mail on Sunday, and you're quite unfiltered there. And in the past couple of weeks, that's turned into a media storm around mm. something you said about Helena Christensen wearing a bodice. Mm. Again, any expectation that that mm. was going to blow up? No, I had no um, no expectation that that was going to blow up. And um, one of the things that interests me actually about that and that there are several interesting aspects to it is that when I wrote in the column about picture that I saw of Helena, I I actually posted that column on Instagram, which I don't always do, um, because I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to get the feedback about the point I was making because I'm writing a book about um what clothes mean and and how we wear them and I thought it the issue of age and fashion was a kind of interesting one to get feedback I mean that's how kind of as it were um undelivered I was in that if I'd thought it was going to provoke that problem I probably wouldn't have also put it out on digital media um I mean I think that it certainly wasn't my finest hour. I'm very pleased that uh, Helena behaved extremely graciously about it. I also think that it is important that you can have an opinion, whether people disagree with it or not. Um, and you've kind of, if you're going to do that, then it might be uncomfortable, but you've got to take the heat, haven't you? Well, also, isn't that your job as a journalist to provoke debate I think as a journalist it is and I think it's one of the things about um, fashion which is quite interesting is that the fashion industry isn't one that particularly embraces actual debate um, exchange of opinions um, for instance you know uh, other art forms it's accepted that you review um, completely impartially, whether you think an exhibition's good, a play's good, a film's good. In fashion, the idea is that your um, your criticism would be to ignore, but not to actually review and and put your point of view. And so, I think it's it's quite an interesting question how kind of commentary is not really a part of the fashion business and. Um, Maybe sometimes, because I am a journalist at, at heart and now I don't have any particular allegiances, my kind of knee-jerk uh, like of commentary kind of over overturns my, um, I wouldn't say good sense, but I mean, the, the point about Helena is that she's wonderful and I think I was kind of wrong to make a negative point about how she looked in a bustier. And what people minded was that I attached that to the idea of age. Uh, I think I was wrong to attach it to Helena. I don't think it's wrong to say that there's a conversation that should be had about fashion and age. So is this something you're addressing in this book that you mentioned? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's not the by any means the only thing. Uh, and right now it's kind of a moment I, uh, 
Right now, it's a subject that I would happily never talk about again. <laughs> but um, I do think it's an interesting one. And it's one that I started um, Age of Style for Vogue. And it was one of the things that I always, always wanted to do with Vogue was to show that you could be older and be engaged in fashion, that you could have um, a body that wasn't the size of a model and you should be able to be part of fashion. And um, and I still think that that's, you know, that's the key thing. We, everybody should be able to enjoy it. And what do you make of the red carpet at the moment? Because it went through a period of being quite interesting in the kind of socio-political uh, climate, and then it seems to have gone back to... Yeah, I mean, I mean that that moment, the Me Too moment on the red carpet, that was never going to last. Um, and in fact, I wrote about it uh, about the fact that the viewing figures that year were like the lowest ever for the award ceremonies, because basically part of the fun is looking at everybody get out there in their gad rags and frankly say, "Doesn't she look amazing? Doesn't she look rubbish?" I mean. Everybody does it. The idea that we all sit there and just all sort of support people for um, having a, uh, you know, an environmental or ecological or political message, that is not really why people enjoy looking at the red carpet. So it doesn't surprise me that everyone's rushed back into fantastic, colourful gowns. Well, also, you know, 10 years ago, perhaps, red top journalism the circle of shame culture and i'm not saying i'm not saying it was a, a good thing but it did incredibly well you know that's what people wanted to read that's what people raced out and bought all of those you know heat and magazines that would actually circle things on the red carpet and can you believe she wore that and you know i i remember as a as a teenager pouring over them it's shifted now because it's now sort of seen as tacky to ever criticize anything does that feel really frustrating as a journalist? Well, I think there's huge hypocrisy here and uh, this kind of culture whereby you can't criticise, whereby you can't... You have to be incredibly anodyne and sort of, in quotes, supportive of everything. Um is kind of a nonsense. It's a nonsense, not because that in itself is a bad thing, but because it's not how people actually behave. It's not how people actually think. Everybody has their own judgments to make about everything. And I feel very, very passionately actually that it that it's um that it that it's a false culture to kind of to put out there to make us think that that's what people really think. Because in the real world, particularly if you're a young person, in the real world, you have to be able to deal with the fact that people are going to criticise you. You have to be able to deal with the fact that there are going to be judgments made about you and what you do that won't necessarily be right or fair. And you've got to learn. That's a great trick. You've got to learn how to deal with that. So the idea that, you know, we have a culture now where people just can only say, wow, babe, you look gorge, it just drives me crazy. So tell me about this fashion mag comedy. That we, So there's been kind of, I don't know what you're allowed to say, but I'd heard that you might have sold the screenplay already and that we could be seeing a glimpse. 
Um, no, sadly, we, we <laughs> we're not that far down the line. Um, my colleague Fiona Golfer and I, um, when we left Vogue, put together uh, an outline for um, for a, uh, a a program that was about would be a series about um, the fashion industry. Um, probably set in a magazine, not absolutely definitely, but probably set in a magazine. That was two years ago now, nearly two years ago. Um, certain, we've got a, a great production company who are on board with it. Um, we are uh, casting a writer because we want a really top TV writer. I mean, both Fiona and I can write, but I don't think that we, we, we've never done scripts and I think it would be important to get to get somebody good. It's not a comedy, actually. It's much more about um, looking at the world through the filter of fashion and it's got quite kind of, idea being it's got quite serious issues but it's also got sort of issues that are relevant to everybody uh, but the clothes will be great. Yeah, it's, um, it's going to be great. So it's going to be really based on reality rather than yeah, I, a I champagne think both, and... No, both Fiona and I, much as we love AbFab, um, we've taken it as far away from that as it could possibly be. Uh, it It is meant to be... It's meant to be showing what it's really like to be within that world, but also to show how people working in that world have the same lives as everybody. They have the same issues with their kids, with their parents, with their body image, you know, with their holidays. I mean, it's sort of, yeah, it's bringing the reality into fashion and fashion into reality. So is that the focus of this is act three of your career now? Um, like, What are your ambitions? I was saying the other day to someone that the only thing that I haven't achieved since leaving um, is that I'd, all, I'd hoped that I was going to kind of get involved in something entirely different that I like a hobby, something learning something that would be totally something I'd never done before and um, and that I failed to do that and that that's what I, that's my ambition for this next year. I'm thinking of learning the drums. Okay. <laughs> something really different then. Yeah. <laughs> we'll watch this space. <laughs> yeah. We might find you in a band. Definitely. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you. I'm sad to say that's all we've got time for today. To join the conversation, email me at unzipped at telegraph.co.uk or find me on Instagram and Twitter at Charlie Gowans. You can also sign up at telegraph.co.uk forward slash fashion unzipped sub for a free 30-day trial of all the Telegraph's online content. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.